Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus, and transform Hoxton. We're continuing this little sermon series that we're following through October, November, December on the words and the works of Jesus. And in particular today, we're thinking about Jesus's teaching, his words, not so much his works, but his teaching to his disciples and by extension to us, his followers, recorded in Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is a long chapter, it's dense and it's complicated. And Stephen read for us the second half of the chapter. But if we looked at the whole chapter, we'd be quite um, overwhelmed by the apocalyptic language talk of uh, the sun ceasing to shine, the moon going dark, all kinds of signs and portents and things that feel a little bit terrifying. And uh, we could be left thinking that this is all about um, Jesus predicting judgment and all kinds of terrible things that may happen come to pass at the end of time. And I want us to explore it a little bit more today, thinking about Jesus and his coming. In fact, when we were preparing this sermon series, we we entitled this talk, Jesus and his second coming. But perhaps uh, for reasons that will become more clear as we go on, it's better to think of this as simply Jesus and his coming. Jesus and his coming to be with us. Advent, uh, as I said a little earlier, is traditionally a season where we consider and reflect not just on Jesus' coming in history, born in that manger in Bethlehem, born and born, born, uh, laid in a, in a manger um, in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, but also his coming uh, to bring to completion the renewal of all things. His coming to bring to completion the renewal of all things. God is in the process of renewing the whole earth, making all things new, uh, making our lives new, one life at a time. And Jesus will come at the end of time to bring to completion that renewal of all things. And our collect today that Will prayed for us earlier, it reminds us that Advent is a season of fasting and of preparation. It's very easy to be seduced into thinking that Advent is just a countdown to Christmas and a a time for parties and chocolates from your Advent calendars and Christmas drinks. Actually, uh, you know, and I'm not going to be a stickler and a rigorist for this, but remember that the feast of Christmas begins on Christmas Day and goes on for 12 days until Epiphany. Uh, We in our household are this year going to try and populate that a little bit more by doing some of our fun trips after Christmas, during the feast of Christmas, and not doing everything beforehand during Advent. But I'm not judging anybody who goes to Panto before Christmas or anything else like that. That's absolutely fine. But our collect today reminds us the nature of the Advent season. It says, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. That's what this season of fasting is about. Casting away the works of darkness, putting on the armor of light. It's a season of transformation. And that we do this now in the time of this mortal life. And then it goes on to say, in which your son Jesus Christ came to us in great humility. That's reminding us of the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Uh, Not in a state of majesty or power, but in humility and obscurity. That on the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. This collect for Advent is all about the transformation of our lives and looking not just to 
the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but to his coming again to rule the earth in glory. Now the passage that we just heard has much to say to us about the coming of Jesus and about our response, but it's not easy to decipher, so we're going to take a little bit of time to examine the passage and try to understand what God might be saying to us through it today. Uh, So may I pray for us as we begin. Father, I ask that you would graciously pour out your Holy Spirit to rest upon us, to inspire our minds and our hearts, to hear and perceive what you are saying to us through scripture, but more than that, to become obedient and to respond joyfully to your will and to your command. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our coming King. Amen. So if you um, have kept your Bibles open on page 993, uh, you'll see that Matthew 24 uh, is a passage full of these sorts of, sorts of heightened language about things that are to come, things that are to pass, things that will happen that will be terrible or terrifying or strange and peculiar. In the first half of the chapter, which we didn't read today, Jesus predicts the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And this indeed came to pass in history in the year AD 70. From AD 66 to 70, for a four or five year period, the Roman Empire besieged Jerusalem. You see, uh, the Israelites were trying to overthrow Roman occupation and rule. And uh, the Romans had a pretty ruthless streak. And when it came to people who were trying to overthrow them or kick them out, uh, they would just go and quash any uprisings or rebellions with brutal and devastating violence. And so for four years, five years, uh, they surrounded Jerusalem, cut off all the water supply, all the food supply. Jewish historian Josephus records that it was so, the situation was so desperate uh, that one mother was reported as having killed her own baby, eaten half of her own baby, and offered the other half to the occupying forces to let her go free. This, this was the sort of devastating, terrible things which were going on. But roll back 40 years earlier, AD 30, 32, 34 or so, the disciples and Jesus are there in Jerusalem and the disciples are admiring the temple. These great big stones, this, this great building, this symbol of national pride and hope. And the disciples say to Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 24, look at this temple, look at its great stones, look at this amazing building. And Jesus casually says, I tell you, this will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left standing upon another. And the disciples are baffled and astounded because like most of their compatriots, they believed that God's coming Messiah would overthrow Roman occupation and vindicate the people of Israel and establish them once again as a sort of autonomous, political, national, religious entity seeking freedom from Roman occupation. The temple had become a symbol for Israel's nationalism. And Jesus says, it's going to be devastated and struck down. Nothing will be left standing. And indeed, this did come to pass in AD 70. So the first half of 
chapter 24 of Matthew deals with this description of what the siege of Jerusalem leading up to the destruction and the temple will be like. And it's an encouragement to the followers of Jesus to stand firm. It's a reminder to them uh, that even when terrible things happen around them, uh, they can still trust in God. It's also a reminder and a warning to say, uh, perhaps you should just flee for the hills if you can and escape because it will be so devastating. And then there's this hinge in verse 29, just before we pick up the story uh, with our reading today. And Jesus draws upon the prophet Isaiah, talking about the sun being darkened, the moon not shining, stars falling. This is not intended to be literal, but rather symbolic. Isaiah used this same language to talk about the overthrow of the northern kingdom by the Assyrian Empire hundreds of years earlier. This is language to tell us that something significant is happening, something's going to change. When we talk about empires or nations rising and falling, we don't mean literally in spatial terms, we mean their power or their influence. And from verse 29, 30 onwards, the teaching of Jesus changes emphasis and focuses not now on the coming destruction of Jerusalem, but instead on the authority of the Son of Man and how people should respond. So in the first half of the chapter, Jesus is drawing upon uh, the language of Isaiah and thinking about terrible things that go on when nations are overthrown and, to, and you know, drawing upon the, uh, the history of brutal violence that happens to people and predicting the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. But in verse 30 onwards, where we pick up the reading today, it shifts. And it's really important that we should have in mind Daniel chapter 7, because all of Jesus's audience would have had it in mind. Daniel was a popular story amongst the Jews of Jesus' day. It had been drawn upon heavily 150 years earlier during the Maccabean revolt and uprising in the second century BC when uh, Greek, uh, Greek well, well, he was a power lord really, um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV had marched into Jerusalem and tried to erect his own statue in the Jerusalem temple and the Maccabeans had overthrown uh, the Greek invaders and uh, Daniel was drawn upon as a, as, as a, as a story story of the vindication of God uh, for his people. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says this, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Does that ring a bell? Did we hear something about that? We did. Verse 30, then will appear this in um, Matthew 24, then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the minute Jesus says these words, these verses from Daniel 7 are evoked and drawn upon. But it carries on in Daniel 7. This Son of Man, this, this one like a Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven, approaches the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Daniel 7 is all about this messianic figure, this son of man who will come before God and be given authority and dominion over all the earth. And Jesus draws upon that language to talk about himself as the son of man who comes on the clouds and who will be given authority and dominion over the earth. And it's about how we might then respond. So with that said, I want to highlight just a few sections from our readings to help us think about our response to God's word today.
Now, one of the most pressing questions that we uh, as Christian readers of the scriptures have to determine uh, with this passage is, is it about the return of Christ at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, sort of as the words of our colleague put it, or is it about something else? I'm persuaded by good biblical scholarship, the work of G.B. Caird and R.T. France and Tom Wright, more contemporary to us, that the language about the coming of the Son of Man is not to do with Jesus' return at the end of time, but rather is to do with his coming before the Ancient of Days, which occurs at his ascension 40 days after his resurrection. The Greek word used to describe the return of Jesus in 1 Corinthians or 1 Thessalonians is perusia, and it refers to the, the presence, the tangible presence of Christ with us. But the Greek word used here to describe the Son of Man coming on the clouds is ekomenos, which has to do with motion towards, not so much about tangible presence and more about direction and motion towards. And the direct allusion to that well-known passage in Daniel that I've just uh, cited is intended to immediately invoke a sense of authority given to this Son of Man. And when you think about the passage, which, passages which deal with Jesus and his disciples after his resurrection, this makes sense. Think about Matthew 28. Jesus, uh, after his resurrection, appears to the disciples on numerous occasions and he eats with them and he teaches them. Uh, and then uh, just before his ascension, he come, in Matthew 28 it records, he comes uh, to a mountaintop with them and he says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Matthew 28, 16 to 20, I think it is. Uh, that's, we call it the Great Commission. But what does Jesus say on that mountaintop right before his ascension? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then in Acts chapter 1, the opening chapter of the book of Acts uh, describes the ascension of Jesus. And the ascension of Jesus is something that very often we overlook but Jesus describes himself as being given authority and then commissions the disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He commissions them for missions, just as he does in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations. So these words of Jesus are all to do with his coming vindication in his resurrection, his ascension, the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the mission to the Gentiles. And in a way, what we have to get our heads around is that Jesus, when he's teaching the disciples in Matthew 24, and all these words are being recorded, the disciples can be a bit baffled because they're thinking, how on earth can Jerusalem be destroyed? It's the symbol of our national hope and pride. It would be devastating if it does. But 40 years later, the other side of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, they think, oh my goodness, Jesus foretold this. He, he saw that this was coming. It's a vindication of Jesus' claims. Similarly, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples see him coming on the clouds to his Father in heaven to be given all authority. And it's a vindication of that claim here in Matthew 24 that he will come in the coming in the clouds with glory and with great power. 
Indeed, the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost and then the commissioning and the sending out of uh, the, disciple, uh, the disciples into all nations, that the mission to the Gentiles that we see recorded uh, in the New Testament is a vindication of this claim that they will gather the elect from the four winds. It's there, let me find the verse for you. Um, he will send his angels, verse uh, 35, he will send his angels with a loud, sorry, it's not verse 35, I think it's verse 31. Um, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Gathering from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other is about the geographical scope of the mission to the Gentiles. This is not just about gathering the elect of Israel. This is you and me. This is those of us through history and across the world who have been gathered in by Jesus. The emphasis is on the geographical scope and range. So this understanding, I think, helps us make sense of that otherwise tricky verse 34. Verse 34 says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And some biblical scholars have struggled with that over the years because they've thought that if this was about Jesus' return at the end of time, his second coming, then what on earth do you do with the fact that Jesus claimed that the generation they're listening would see it happen in their lifetime? Well, surely Jesus was wrong. Or maybe he didn't mean generation in terms of a generation of people alive. Maybe he meant a race or an ethnic group. And people have done all kinds of fancy theological footwork to try and make sense of this. But nobody has satisfactorily come up with an account that makes sense. But if we understand that the coming in glory and in great power of Jesus to the ancient days, to his father in heaven is about his ascension 40 days after his resurrection then suddenly it begins to make sense and for us reading today 2,000 years later we can see the vindication of Jesus as the son of man with authority and dominion that did occur in the lifetime of those who were listening to Jesus his first audience but also has occurred for us as we see him in glory, ruling from heaven. So what then does the rest of Jesus' teaching say to us if this is about his authority? Does it have anything to say about Jesus' return at the end of time? Well, yes, it does, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what you think it tells you. It tells us that we're the ones chosen and commissioned. We're the ones left behind to be the stewards of his creation. We're the ones left behind to care for the master's house. Now, I'm using those words advisedly. I'm using that phrase, left behind, because some of you will read this passage and your mind will go to American TV shows and stuff you might watch on Revelation TV or God TV or books that you've read about the popular Left Behind series uh, that's originated in the US and spread around the world. Just put your hands up if you're familiar with the Left Behind series. A few. Well, mercifully, quite a lot of you are not. <laughs> um, there has been, in the 20th century in particular, a popular notion or idea that this passage, Matthew 24, is to do with the judgment at the end of time in which those who are saved will be somehow taken up and those who are condemned to 
destruction, terrible destruction, and will be left behind. And the, the idea of these books and the TV series is to say it's a terrible thing to be left behind. You don't want to be left behind. You want to make sure that you are taken up and not left behind. This teaching um, originates in the rapture theology of a theologian and Christian leader named J.N. Darby. He founded the Plymouth Brethren, uh, so this is not a slur on anyone with a Brethren background, given that half my family is from a Brethren background, but J.N. Darby lived in the 19th century, uh, and he developed a reading of this passage and an understanding of this passage which emphasized this idea of a rapture, the idea that God's elect, God's chosen people, would be somehow taken up to heaven uh, disembodied, taken up, and all of those people who were left behind would then suffer a great tribulation. And it spawned this popular American series of books and TVs. And it's fundamentally a misreading of this section in uh, Matthew 24 about the days of Noah. This is what um, Jesus says to his disciples. He says about that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the son of man. And remember, if, if I'm right about the claim I've just made, this is about the ascension that's gonna happen pretty soon after Jesus's words. So it will be at the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And took them all away. Bear in mind that phrase, it took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the son of man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. What happened in the days of Noah in Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9 in and, and, and the story of Noah and the ark and the flood? Well, those who were condemned to destruction were taken by the flood and those who entered the ark with Noah were left behind to repopulate and be the stewards of God's creation when the flood waters receded. It's an exact reversal of J.N. Darby's reading. To be taken is bad news and to be left behind is good news. The ones taken in the days of Noah are destroyed in judgment. The ones left behind repopulate the world. They are the ones chosen to be God's stewards in creation. So if we're left behind to be God's stewards, if we are caring for his house, the earth and his people, awaiting his return, well, how are we supposed to live? And then Jesus carries on uh, to talk about um, servants and master of a house. When will Jesus returned, we don't know, but we do know how we should behave in the meantime. So in verses 45 to 51, the final section of this chapter, Jesus draws upon the idea of wisdom and folly. Remember, he uses the idea of wisdom and folly in the Sermon on the Mount when he describes the wise and the foolish builders, but he also draws upon a deeper uh, tradition in Jewish wisdom literature about living wisely or living foolishly. The wise uh, walk in step with the will of God. They, they go along the grain uh, of the, the sort of moral grain of the universe um, and things 
probably go well with them. Uh, But the foolish depart from God's wisdom and things tend to go badly for them. There's a wise way to live in accordance with God's commands and a foolish way, ignoring them. And Jesus invites his disciples and us to live as wise servants in God's house, taking good care of others. So, let me conclude. What does this passage tell us about the second coming of Jesus? Answer, not very much. But what does it tell us about the coming of Jesus before his Father in heaven to receive all authority and dominion at his ascension? Well, it tells us a great deal. It tells us that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the true Messiah of God, the one who promised to come and to be the saviour of the world. And it tells us that the end times of God have already begun. So we are living in the end times. The end times of God began in the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's when this work of the great renewal of creation, the renewal of all things, began. And we play our part by being those elect who are gathered from the four winds, from all corners of the world, by being those filled with the spirit of Pentecost, by being wise servants in the house of God, by being left behind as stewards of God's creation. Jesus has already come to rule the earth, and he does so from the right hand of the Father in heaven. He exercises his rule through his people, the church, guided and empowered by his spirit. So, The message to me today reading this scripture, and I hope to you today reading this scripture, is that if the end times have begun and we're awaiting the return of the master to his house, to his house, then we can live now as we will in the new creation. And so actually this passage for me becomes an invitation to live as a wise servant in the house of God to live awaiting his return, but to play my part in the renewal of all things. And so I return to the words of our collect today to end. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life, not at the end of time, now, in which your son Jesus Christ came to us in great humility, that on the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.